let me just welcome you on behalf of the members and elders of Crescent Church um, to this, what is going to be a series of three evenings on mental health, each evening addressing a different aspect of mental health. Um, This evening is stress, anxiety and depression in our first session, and then there will be our second session, which will focus on our own mental health. Listen, we are just absolutely delighted uh, to have Ken uh, here to speak to us and to all of you. Um, Ken, as you will have seen on the literature, is a Belfast Belfast Trust psychiatrist. Um, He also is a committed Christian and worships at Belfast City Vineyard. Um, I attended one of his courses at Belfast Bible College and thought that it was so good that it would be worth sharing with my home congregation. Um, and of course, hopefully you will all do the exact same thing. So I'm going to hand over the rest of our evening to Ken, um, and he might have some other things to say. But just to say, you're so welcome. We're so delighted that you're all here. Um, yeah, enjoy your evening. Thank you so much. Um, can you hear me okay at the back? Really Uh, Good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I thought maybe good if we open in a just a short word of prayer, if that's okay. I sure need it. (laughs) Don't know about you. Um, Lord, we thank you for the gathering this evening, and we ask that you will uh, do do your work. Uh, I believe there's a, a reason why each has come, and uh, we ask that you will move in the hearts of each one uh, to um, really stir up interest and uh, passion and commitment in this area. We commit uh, today and, and the whole series to you, asking for your blessing on each of the sessions. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. I was reviewing my slides yesterday and then uh, had to chuckle at the first one because it says, if you read it literally, stress, anxiety, depression, Crescent Church. (laughs) It is, of course, couldn't be further from the truth, uh, further from reality. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is a a, a place of peace and healing and hope for all who come. Okay. As Michael says, and as you probably know, this, these evenings are part of a series on the church and mental health. Uh, I have a particular interest in the interface between Christianity and mental health. So it's always a delight to come and share in this way. Um, I have a, a particular interest in the potential for churches to play a part in responding well to people struggling with mental health problems. So my um, ulterior motive which I will not keep hidden, is that if, if in some way you can be enthused about this topic uh, and 
uh, begin to think about how you and your church even can play some part, even a small part, in being part of, a, of the church's response to mental health issues, then I would be delighted, and, and this would be really pleasing to me. So I have an ulterior motive of uh, equipping and uniting local churches to effectively serve people who are struggling with mental health issues. I think it's an area that can help to unite churches. And I I believe this evening is a mixture of people from different churches, which is due to Michael's diligence in advertising and uh, getting the word out there. So that's tremendous. I think this is one area where we can really, or we need to, come together and work together to pool our resources because no one person can do it, no one congregation can do it, no one denomination can do it. Uh, It needs to be something the church comes together over. Uh, And I hope you catch some of that in the next few weeks. You will have uh, copies of the the, uh, slides, so I hope you don't have to write too much down. Uh, I, I note that Michael has very cleverly done booklets for some people who do like to write things down, so by all means. You will also have a uh, resource list. I hope you have a resource list. Uh, Now, we expect you to have read all the books by the next uh, session, and there'll be a register to check on you. Uh, uh, Just kidding. Obviously, uh, this is there for your reference, and if I can point out on the, on the first page, the website called Mind and Soul. Um, has anyone already know what Mind and Soul is and has, have been to Mind and Soul website and looked at their resources? Because it really is the gold standard in terms of uh, a portal for resources about Christianity and mental health um, run by a, by a collection of people, including a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a pastor. So you've got a good mixture and really high quality, good quality stuff on, on that website. So let me draw your attention to Mind and Soul as a resource. Uh, that's just to recap the schedule for the coming weeks. Uh, today, uh, for this first part of this evening, we're looking at the topic of uh, stress and anxiety, as well as depression, and we'll, we'll cover stress and anxiety first of all. So I think definitions are important, and I've uh, given a definition for each of stress and anxiety, because they are slightly different, although in our minds we can often kind of conflate the two, uh, and, you know, we think of stress in the same way we think of anxiety, and, you know, it's, it's not something to get too worried about, uh, but I suppose the, maybe the key distinction is stress has a more uh, neutral or should have a more neutral connotation in that 
not all stress is negative or is bad if we're using stress in its broader sense. Yeah. Uh, so a you know a concert pianist uh, needs to have a certain amount of stress to perform at the highest level and. Usain Bolt, although he may not show it, needs to experience certain feelings of stress before make, uh, starting his race. Um, so, you know, we need... Uh, stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. Although we tend to use it in a negative way. Um, anxiety, on the other hand, um, has a more negative connotation, and probably rightly so, yeah. And it refers to a sort of a negative reaction to stress. It's when stress becomes a problem um, and interferes with our life. So that's the distinction I make in my own mind. If there's time at the end of each session, I'll open up to questions. And uh, uh, very happy to take questions. Not everything I say might be agreeable to everyone very open to being uh, questioned or challenged or having different views brought in if that would be appropriate. When we're thinking about mental health problems and mental health conditions, uh, an important concept to get in mind is the spectrum between symptoms and syndrome, which is not black and white, not clear-cut, but it's important to realize that a lot of these things, a lot of mental health difficulties exist on a continuum where you go, go from mild to more severe. Um, and not everyone who experiences symptoms has a syndrome or a disorder or an illness. Yeah? So quite important to... Uh, otherwise, everything becomes a mental illness or a mental disorder whereas not everyone who is experiencing difficult, challenging symptoms has a mental illness per se or a syndrome. So we make a distinction between symptoms and syndrome. The last line there, that's that's the criteria uh, clinicians use to help us determine when something has become more of a syndrome, more of a clinical problem, more of an illness, more of a disorder. And it's quite obvious if if the symptoms are more severe, if the symptoms are more persistent, if the symptoms are leading to uh, the person becoming at increased risk of harm to themselves or to other people, if the symptoms are causing undue distress, that's clearly causing significant subjective distress, and um, if the symptoms are leading to a definite interference with the person's day-to-day functioning. So if you've got all those things going on for someone, then they're probably moved into a kind of a clinical problem. They move from symptoms to a syndrome. They probably are not... um, as as in control of things as they could be, uh, quite likely they're they're more likely in need of outside help, maybe even professional help. Um, 
So for all the conditions that we're going to be talking about, I'll show the same slide, this spectrum of symptoms and syndrome. So we've got anxiety symptoms. Anxiety symptoms are either psychological, so the worry and the apprehension and the fear and the lack of concentration, uh, and physical, so the sweatiness and the shakiness and the lump in the throat and the difficulty breathing and the butterflies in the tummy and the heart racing. Um, And if those symptoms are more severe and more persistent and lead to risk and distress and function, then somebody can develop an anxiety disorder. And there are different types of anxiety disorders depending on the nature of the anxiety. Uh, Time doesn't permit to go into all of them, but I've listed a few Examples: the, most, the, the, com- the more common examples of anxiety disorders. Out of interest, the two uh, other conditions, OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, traditionally have come under the rubric of anxiety disorders. Uh, more modern classifications may be moving away from that slightly. But traditionally, they've, they've come under anxiety disorders. Again, for each of the conditions, I present one slide on uh, some, a few statistics, and I only present one slide because I'm not very good at statistics, first of all, and secondly, they don't tell us an awful lot when you're dealing with an individual who's struggling, you know, you're dealing with the person in front of you who's struggling, it doesn't really matter how many other people are, have the condition in the country or in the world or how many, what's the male-to-female ratio. You know, you're dealing with the person in front of you. Um, also, it's very hard to get accurate figures about what's really going on with mental health conditions. Um, a lot of people don't, present for help. It can be be quite hard to count accurately how many people are suffering. But I just throw up a few um, statistics there for the different anxiety disorders. Those percentages are per per population, percentage per population. Uh, There is a a, uh, sometimes uh, controversial statement there uh, women al- almost twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with, an- with anxiety disorders. Um, and it, usually in, in smaller group sessions, I open up a discussion that becomes very interesting and fruitful uh, uh, as to why this might be. And uh, the feedback is usually, you know, uh, along the lines of, Uh, the difference in terms of how women express their feelings and process their emotions, you know. Uh, uh, But that's a very interesting discussion to have. We think we're a bit too big to have that kind of discussion right right now. Um, Just to point out, the website reference on that slide is the Mental Health Foundation. That's where I got my statistics from, and that website does a very good... Uh, section on statistics. Every few years they produce a booklet, a document that summarizes the latest state of play uh, in terms of 
the frequency of different conditions in the UK. Uh, probably appropriate to extend our apologies to some people who've just come. You're the ones who probably thought it started at half seven because you were following the website, what the website said, whereas the leaflet said seven. Uh, we kind of went for quarter past seven <laughs> to factor that in. So, but apologies, and that's just uh, unfortunate, but uh, glad, glad you're here. Uh, we're on the topic of stress and anxiety. Okay, so... I thought to help with the understanding of stress and anxiety, uh, I'll go through some concepts around the idea, the topic, the condition. Uh, So we'll cover five things there. The first one is the uh, importance of context. Because the Uh, Like we said at the start, you know, stress is not inherently a negative thing. It can be a very necessary, uh, even positive thing in some uh, situations. Likewise, the the feelings of anxiety themselves are, you know, we would say God-given, God-designed emotions and reactions that are there for a specific purpose. Uh, And if they arise in the right context and for the right purpose, then they are very welcome, uh, very necessary, in fact, essential. Uh, But the problem comes if if they are switched on and if they emerge uh, in the wrong context or in an unhelpful context, then you end up having problems. So if you were being chased down the, the Malone Road by a saber-toothed tiger, I, I would hope that you, you would be anxious. I, I would hope that your heart would be racing, your breathing full pelt, your, your t- butterfl- butterflies in your tummy, your dry mouth, everything, sweating, shaking, uh, in order to propel you onwards towards safety. Um, how many of you are afraid of spiders? Okay, there's usually, uh, there's usually a few. Now, you know, I, uh, uh, we don't want to belittle that. That's, a, that's quite a serious problem. You know, it's not a small thing, but it's a different kind of thing. And if, if you have the same reaction as you would to a saber-toothed tiger on the Malone Road to a spider in your bathtub, then that's out of context. And that's not what the reaction is for. Uh, so PTSD, you know, if you were in the heat of battle, I, I've never been in that position, but I can just imagine if you were, I, I reckon you'd be pretty anxious. Um, uh, or if you were in the middle of the traumatic incident itself, you know. The problem comes if, it, if it's 10 years later um, and you have the same feelings triggered by a picture of the country in which you had the conflict or in which you were caught up, you know, then that becomes a problem because the context is not uh, appropriate to the reaction. Okay. So a lot, of our, a, lot of our stra- a lot of our anxiety arises because we're having an anxiety reaction in situations when actually, you know, we probably don't need to. 
Um, you know, it's not that easy, of course. Some, sometimes it's hard to tell. But uh, generally speaking, it's probably because, you know, the way we're looking at the situation, the way we're perceiving a situation, uh, our imagination about what's going on may not be all that accurate or all that helpful or all that God-influenced to the point where we are making misinterpretations and becoming more anxious than we need to be. So that's what I mean by the importance of context. The second concept that I wanted to share is uh, the, yeah, simple, resource demand balance. So negative stress, anxiety comes uh, when the demand that we face, which can come both externally and internally as well, when the demand that we face or even the demand that we perceive we face is greater or overwhelms our resources or our perceived level of resources. Can you get that? So if we think that we're facing something which is greater than what we have to meet it or what we have to cope with it, then that's the scenario situation in which we can feel anxious, overwhelmed, stressed, burnt out, etc., etc. So this has implications for what we do about it, yeah? Is there anything we can do about the demand? Is there anything we can do about how we perceive the demand? Is there anything we can do about our resources to build up resilience? Is there anything we can do to improve how we perceive our resources to be. Um, our Christian faith helps us in this area when we, the, the more we realize uh, how much we have in Christ, the more we realize what investment God can place in the heart of a human, the more we surrender to his empowering and ability and strength. You know. So, to, to think about the resource demand balance. Uh, the next concept is the stress performance curve. Uh, any, any psychology students or any management consultants will have seen this before. This is quite a famous uh, curve. Again, emphasizing not all stress is bad. A certain amount of stress is required to get us going, to give us motivation, to spur us on, uh, to even help us achieve peak performance. But too much and too long, then we begin to come down the other side. We begin to get tired and exhausted and burnt out and fatigued. So it's learning to live in the right amount of, right amount of stress. Most of us probably struggle with, um, you know, trying to manage the, the stress level so that we don't tip over into tired, tiredness and exhaustion and burnout. I don't know, maybe some of us here need more stress in our lives to, to uh, get ourselves to realize our potential, and uh, we need to be actually geeing ourselves up more. So that's another, another concept. Um, the fourth concept 
that I wanted to cover was uh, uh, this idea of feel the fear and do it anyway. This is a title of a very famous book by Susan Jeffers. Has anyone read this or come across this? It's a little slogan that captures the uh, idea that um, psychological science has really been able to establish that uh, usually, usually, uh, the best way to uh, face anxiety or the best way to deal with anxiety is to face it head on and to go through it and to realize that you can actually survive uh, your feared consequences because your feared consequences are usually greater than what in reality things are going to be like. And if you look at that, that graph, it refers to when, when, when stress and anxiety are increasing. Yeah? And if you think that it's going to keep increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing and, and never stop until you explode or die, then you will uh, uh, panic and you, you will be driven to find uh, quick and powerful and short-term effective solutions to bring your anxiety level down quickly so that you don't end up in that totally uncontrolled state. And this is where people can do things like run away, uh, avoid the issue, um, drink alcohol, self-harm. Um, I was going to say go shopping. Maybe that's a little bit sensitive here. Uh, but, but just do something to avoid feeling the feeling to its natural conclusion. So, so you actually never learn that actually you can feel anxious up to a point and then if you didn't react negatively to it, um, it can come down and eventually extinguish um, as you stay in the moment, perhaps utilize some methods to help you relax and cope in the moment without um, doing something drastic or more dramatic to bring your anxiety level down. And so this is important because if you don't learn this, you get stuck in cycles where you, you think your technique of preventing the catastrophe is the thing that has helped you conquer your anxiety. So if you're afraid of people going out and you never go out, um, you, it might stop you feeling anxious about that in the short term, but it doesn't really ever help you learn how to cope with being among other people. The only way of doing that is to be there and learn how to cope. Now, people might need help with that, of course, you know, but the avoidance uh, isn't going to help in the long term. If, if you uh, get drunk every time you're anxious, um, it, it's a short-term fix, um, but uh, you never learn that actually you can cope and live through a certain amount of anxiety without having to get drunk and avoid the issue in the first place. So I hope I... Uh, I mean, and that's the basis of a lot of therapy for anxiety, which involves um, exposing the person 
to the feared stimulus. Uh, now, with, with support and with techniques to help them cope, but it's about facing it, uh, feeling the fear, and doing it anyway. Yeah. Anyone, is anyone uh, recognizing this from Scripture? Has anyone heard of fear not, for I am with you? Uh, that there's a be bold, be strong. Speak up, please. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you were affirming. Yes. So, you know, uh, there's something about courage, uh, facing things, going through things. And lastly, uh, oh. uh, this thing about secondary reactions, and we all do this, you know, and you can see it happening. And you can see, and, and, and what I mean by here is that uh, uh, we st- start to have a reaction to our reactions. Yeah? So somebody feels, begins to feel anxious or worried or, or nervous. And they've just come from church where the preacher has told them, be anxious for nothing. Do not worry. <laughs> you know, so, so I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be worrying. You know, and they start getting anxious about feeling anxious. You know. And some people actually then start going on a spiral where they uh, feel guilty about feeling anxious, about feeling anxious. And it can go on as, as long as you want. You can be then anxious about feeling guilty that you're anxious about being anxious. You know, you get into a spiral, your mind takes over. And people can get very, very distressed very quickly when you, when you get into that. And this is why um, things like mindfulness is, is, has really caught on, because things like that um, are about helping people to ground themselves in the here and now and just focus on the initial thought and not to be judgmental about your own thoughts. So if you're anxious, you know, a more mindful approach, and dare I say um, even a more Christian approach, is to acknowledge, do you know what, I'm, I'm feeling anxious at the moment. You know, I wonder what's going on. Um, maybe my emotions are telling me something. Maybe there's something in my life which I need to attend to. Maybe there's a saber-toothed tiger behind me. You know who knows. Uh, but so, so it's it's um, again something just to be aware of, uh, not to allow something to start and then spiral as you get yourself into a, a wave and a wave of of negative thinking. Um, what what can we do to to help people? who are struggling with stress and anxiety. Uh, again, I, I only can going to give a very broad overview uh, in the form of a framework, uh, in the form of a, uh, just a, a general approach. These are all the things that I'm thinking about when I have somebody in front of me. Um, I'm not necessarily talking to them about it, but it's going through my mind. Um, and, uh, um, uh, you know, we're, we're looking holistically. So, to, to run, when I'm looking at somebody, I'm thinking, okay, what's the aim? What am I trying to achieve? You know, um, h- how much is this person going to be able to respond to help? Um, 
you've got to be realistic. Sometimes if people have had anxiety for 20 years, you know, that it may, it's, going to take a, it's going to take a while. <laughs> Some people are going to perhaps have to learn to, to live with their condition as best as they can and not expect cure, etc., etc. And I'm thinking about what's the, what's the support network, who is involved in this person's life and how can each one of them help. I'm thinking about risk, uh, who can, uh, what's, what's the potential risk involved here. And I'm thinking biological things, you know, their, their lifestyle, their nutrition, their exercise, um, and then does medication have a role to play? And I'm going to spend uh, a couple of slides, one on medication and one on therapy, shortly. Uh, psychological, you know, what support do they need and what support can they get? Is there any godly counsel that can be brought forth? Um, do they need professional counseling or therapy here? Uh, in terms of their social situation, are there any circumstances that can be addressed? Um, you know, practical things with housing and finance and accommodation. Um, do they have structured activity in their lives? What are the relationships like? Are there relationships that need to be repaired and restored? Um, I'm thinking spiritual, and we'll come back to that later on in the next uh, session. Uh, I'm thinking systems, you know, uh, I'm thinking, a family, what, what support can we, does the family need to, to support the person? What support can the family provide to the person? Likewise for friends. You know, how much of a person's anxiety is to do with wider systems? I'd say often the problem is not, not just an individual person, but it's a system in which the person uh, lives in, which if it's dysfunctional, then it's going to take a, a, a wider approach. And then other things. What, are there any alternative um, things, things on the horizon? Experiment. experiment. I, I generally, my, my rule of thumb is, um, if it works, as long as it's legal and moral, uh, or at least morally neutral, then I'm generally okay with that, you know. So I've got quite a broad approach to, if somebody says, you know, um, I was helped by mindfulness or yoga or acupuncture, you know, if, 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 they're, if they're using it as, as a sort of an, an approach to help them feel better and not attributing a whole philosophical system behind it, then I'm generally okay with, with that. But we can debate, discuss and debate that if, if you want. And finally, about stress and anxiety... I am um, uh, two further resources. The first one is the standard healthcare approach to, to the five areas of importance. Um, does everyone recognize this? Because you should all have got one in the post at some point over the last couple of years. They send out everyone this take five message. It's, it's, it's quite interesting because they're actually quite spiritual in a sense. You may not be able to read it there, actually, uh, but it says, give, be active, connect, keep learning, and take notice. It's interesting that give is one of the, the uh, five 
uh, key areas that this group of researchers have come up with uh, for for importance of, of, of personal well-being. You know, I thought it was it was quite quite good. And then the second resource is uh, a a course and an approach by a psychologist from Glasgow. Again, uh, quite a holistic approach to managing stress, and the health service has adopted his material, and uh, for for. Uh, clients and for staff, so there are stress control classes, probably some available in your local library um, or your or your local um, GP practice, potentially. So that's quite a good package of uh, resource for stress and anxiety. Um, I'll maybe just take any questions about stress or anxiety. We've only really skimmed the surface there, but are there any questions that anybody wants to ask? I'll take it at this point. There is a microphone available. If there is, just uh, put your hand up or stand up or shout. If not, we'll press on. Okay. Right. Well, we'll press on to the topic of depression. So, I have a similar format here. Um, now, depression, de- uh, definition is really important with depression because depression means many different things to different people. Um, and there really is a range of meanings when people say, use the term depressed. Um, and that can range from, you know, normal unhappiness uh, to a very severe psychiatric condition which can be life-threatening in some cases when people switch off completely and they stop um, eating, stop moving, um, and probably can't even think, you know, at, at the very extreme end. So we have to be, you know, uh, know what we're talking about. Um, there is such a thing as normal unhappiness. Are there any Manchester United supporters here? Just, just. Okay. I'm an Everton supporter, so uh, I'm used to the ups and downs of the emotions. Currently on a high. If you, know, if you follow football, you'll know what I mean. Not to rub it in, sir. No, no. Uh, but, but, you know, it's amazing how, actually how, how emotional football supporters can get. Um, so, that, so, do, not, so, don't, so the importance is not to over-medicalize depression when it's a normal experience and it's just life, you know, and not to call that an illness and to give medication for that and, you know, over-medicalize on the one hand. But on the other hand, not to trivialize somebody who is going through a good-going depressive illness where they've lost the ability to snap out of it a long time ago, where they don't need uh, people telling them to pray harder and read the Bible more, um, where where pat answers are are not helpful. Um, At those times, it's, you know, sometimes you just have to sit and be with someone you know, in, in their pain. Um, 
and be with them <laughs> in their pain. Uh, so, you know, it's important to get the balance. Um, remember this? Symptoms, syndrome. There is a spectrum. I can't give you an exact line which, if they cross that line, they need psychiatric help, they need medication, they need therapy. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's, a, it's a clinic, it's a judgment call. Yeah. Um, probably distress and function are the two things to... Uh, if somebody is very distressed and they can't function uh, in the way that they used to, that's, you know, you get, you get worried about that. And the, those, are, those are red flags. That's, that's a list of what we call major depressive symptoms. You know, these are the way that that's phrased. These are more than just normal passing fleeting sadness, these are more persistent and more severe in the way it's phrased. Um, it's five. Uh, so, generally speaking, if somebody has around five of those uh, symptoms for a couple of weeks persistently or more, you know, they probably need to be assessed for a depressive syndrome or a depressive disorder or a depressive illness. I, I think of them as the same thing. A depressive uh, uh, syndromes, depressive uh, illnesses can either be a, a one-off, in which case we call it a depressive episode. And some people have one depressive episode in their life and they resolve the issues and they move on and they never experience it again. And other people have recurrent depressive episodes where um, it, it does keep coming back in spite of awareness and in spite of intervention and so on. And uh, there's a slightly different approach to, to the two. Statistics. Uh, I'll run through quickly because I don't like, as I said to you, I don't like statistics. Uh, but just to put up some comments about the impact of depression on people's function. It, it's a significant uh, cause of disability and a, and a risk factor for physical health conditions as well. I won't spend so long on the concepts behind uh, depression, but we're into the realm of hurt, of uh, loss in particular, uh, loss of, of valued uh, people, of valued objects, of valued goals, of valued dreams. Um, this twin combination of, or the twin terrors as I call them, of low self-esteem and perfectionism, the, the two go hand in hand. So, so some people, not only do they have a very low view of themselves, you know, which uh, then they filter everything negatively, but then, as a, for some people, the way that they try to address that is to perform as highly and as excellently or as unrealistically well as they can and set themselves unattainable goals which they can never meet. And if you set yourself an impossible goal, then, you know, you're guaranteed 
failure, which only fuels your low self-esteem and uh, which then drives your desire to do things even more perfectly than, than you thought. You know? So that can be a real vicious cycle. Low self-esteem is an interesting topic from a Christian point of view and is maybe beyond the remit of this evening, but uh, if you think about it, depending on how you define low self-esteem, it's, again, one of those things which, uh, 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 if you uh, really understand the gospel, a part of coming into new life in Christ involves having a proper esteem of yourself, which, which actually isn't very positive or isn't very, um, you know, uh, is actually quite sobering to, to see yourself for who you really are. So if you're talking about low self-esteem as recognizing how much, how helpless you are in your own strength and how much you need God's grace and mercy, then, uh, and if it leads you to then come in surrender and repentance and faith to the Lord, well, bring it on, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I don't mind then. If that's the kind of low self-esteem we're talking about, you know, that's for another day. Um, the other concepts then, helplessness, when people feel as if they can't do anything about their situation that can breed uh, low mood, depression, hopelessness, when people can't see a way out uh, there's no end, there's no, no light at the end of the tunnel. And for some people, it's along the lines of an existential uh, crisis where they begin to really question, you know, ask the, the important questions of life. Who am I? Where have I come from? How do I live? What does my life mean? Where am I going? All these important questions. And if you don't have, you know, satisfactory answers, it can propel you into a state of, of despair, uh, so, which again, so some people argue that actually, you know, depression is a very honest response, and some people are very honestly depressed because they are asking the real hard, difficult questions and not coming up with satisfactory answers. But at least they're asking the questions, you know. At least they're willing to uh, allow themselves to wrestle with difficult things and difficult questions. What I haven't put there is biology. So it goes without saying that uh, in the midst of all this, and for anxiety as well, that there's genetic, there can be genetic factors, um, neurobiology, chemicals, and hormones, and we've got to pay attention to that as well. But they're by no means the whole story. So this slide will be very quick because it's exactly the same as the one for anxiety, which is deliberately so because we, you know, we have, have the same similar framework in thinking holistically about the different conditions. A couple of slides more quickly before the break. Uh, the, f the first one is about medication. And this is my approach to medication when I'm speaking to a Christian group. Uh, there are many types of medication. We don't have time to go into all of them. Medication can be really helpful. Um, usually, medication is for symptom control and to give people what we call a leg up in terms of facing their problems and facing their life. They, they, it doesn't 
resolve someone's marital difficulties. It doesn't resolve someone's problems with their boss, but it helps. It can help them think better, feel calmer, be able to deal with the issues at hand um, better. So it's definitely uh, not a sign of weakness if medication has been prescribed, and it would be wrong to. Uh, without knowing a person's history and having the necessary knowledge uh, to tell anyone to you know, stop taking the medication because they should have more faith and God will heal them and you know, they need, just need to pray about things. So that, that wouldn't be wise, and I'm sure you know that. The key thing is that medication needs to be properly prescribed and this is a real challenge. It's a real, it's a real practical problem because it's, it's easy, easier to start somebody on medication, uh, but it's harder to keep in touch and to follow the person up simply because of the amount of uh, volume of people to review. Uh, and people are often started on medication uh, and not able to be reviewed on a sufficiently regular basis to, to even have the question asked, do they still need to be on it? You know? um, so I, I do advise people, if you, if you know somebody who's been on medication for a long time and you know, they're actually doing all right, um, no harm in asking them to make an appointment and posing the question, you know, hey, doc, I've, I've been on this for three years. I've, I've been feeling well for the past two years. Do I still need to be on this? And probably... Uh, they may not be, you know. But if they were to wait for an appointment to come to get that reviewed proactively, they could be waiting a long time. May, that may not happen. Yes. Um, it, it is important, though, not to be, not, for people not to stop too soon. And there's usually kind of a six to nine month rule with a depressive illness. If we start medication and the medication helps and a person's mood improves and they're feeling better, we usually like to wait around six to nine months uh, while, whilst the person is feeling better. Six to nine months when they're feeling better before we think about, uh, think about potentially trying them off the medication. So just be careful if somebody says, I feel great, it's been four weeks on the medication, I think it's time to stop. Pro- possibly too, probably too soon at that point, and certainly never do anything without speaking to the prescriber. Therapy, again, uh, many different approaches, hundreds of different uh, theoretical systems. Um, uh, Each one have, have their strengths and weaknesses. Some focus more on the here and now. Others probe more into the past and look at unresolved conflicts, and it, it, it varies as to what's appropriate for uh, different people. Uh, there, there can be an assumption that, you know, you always need to go back to the root of a problem for a person to get better. And not always so. And sometimes uh, the person may not be able to go back. It may be too distressing for them to go back to the root. Uh, they may not have the psychological ability to cope with that and actually it may have been so long ago that so many other things have happened in the more recent past which are more important to deal with than how it began a long time ago 
So, you know, it's not always that you always have to get to the root of, of a problem. Now, in the area of therapy, there is, in my, in my mind, there is a definite uh, potential or even very real philosophical clash between secular approaches and the Christian uh, worldview. And that's, among other things, it's the source of strength. Where, where does your source of strength ultimately come from? And in a secular uh, uh, practice, you know, that doesn't take into account the spiritual realm and God, you know, you're basically left to yourself and other people as where you draw your strength from, you know. And that's kind of in con- contradiction uh, to what hopefully you're hearing every week from, your, from, from the pulpits of your churches, you know, that it's, it's in him that we live and move and have our being and that ultimately our strength comes from him and all glory goes back to him. So that's a potential philosophical clash in my mind, you know, I think. However, um, uh, however, that shouldn't then limit people from accessing secular therapy if it's indicated uh, and if it's helpful because it can help up to a certain point. And even if it helps somebody feel less anxious and feel less depressed and have a, a more you know, realistic view of their life, hey, that's a good thing. And, and a good therapist um, should be very respectful about a person's faith background anyway. And, and they should take a, a, a non-pejorative uh, stance and be able to accommodate somebody's personal views. So, if, uh, so um, good therapy, good secular therapy is better, much better than bad uh, Christian counseling or, or Christian guidance, you know. Uh, uh, so there's a value with good secular therapy. Now, to, to complete it, then I would say uh, if somebody is um, undertaking a course of secular therapy, th- there's no reason why the church can't come, come alongside that person and provide spiritual counsel or pastoral care. Now, I wouldn't call it counseling because the general rule is you don't, somebody shouldn't really be in, you know, two counseling arrangements at the same time because there's potential for conflict. You know, but I see no problem in somebody getting secular CBT for their depression or their anxiety and getting good teaching, discipleship, even one-to-one uh, befriending, supporting counsel with a wise and helpful Christian brother or sister or pastor or elder. I think the two can, go, um, can work very well hand in hand. That would be my view. And lastly, before the break, can I also um, try and uh, enthuse you with something else which I'm involved in, which is the area of biblical counseling, which is a sort of a talk in itself, but it's simply as the motto of one of the organizations. It's about uh, restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. Um, it's a lot more than that. It's, it's, it is about equipping churches to um, speak well to, to its people, to, to be, you know, Christ-centered in its approach. And, and there's a whole kind of, a, a whole movement 
uh, taking place at the moment. And can I plug, um, there is a, a local conference to introduce this to people who want to know, mo- to know more about it. Stranmelis Evangelical Presbyterian, 11th of May. Uh, please go to Eventbrite if you want more information. Okay. So that's the end of part one. Uh, are there any questions? We can maybe take one or two before we break. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit my cheeky way of saying that, you know, again, I don't have a problem with... I'm, I'm usually asked about mindfulness in these talks. And I said, I don't really have a big problem if it's done well, if, it's ex, if it helps a person have a calmer mind, a less judgmental approach to themselves, slow down, better pace, be more reflective. That's good, but secular mindfulness... It doesn't take it all the way. Um, Christianity is is the ultimate mindfulness <laughs> because you know f- filling your mind with the things of God, filling filling your mind with the truth of God, the wisdom of God, the hope of God, uh, to me expands what mindfulness can bring. So so great if you can calm your mind down. What do you focus on? Yeah, secular mindfulness will teach you to focus on the here and now, on the sounds, on the tastes, on the sights. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I'd, like, I'd like to be able to, you know, calm down, don't judge myself, and allow, you know, the reality of God in the moment where I am to permeate and to be a reality. So it's, it's a, I call that ultimate mindfulness, you know. Wisdom. Individual. To me, it's wisdom, personal conviction, your background, what you've been taught, your theology, your church will all influence how far you go. Like I say, uh, if, if we, you know, can equip people to discern well and to know what the limitations of a, a particular approach are, um, and how it does, it does and can, can and does, do, does fall short in certain ways, and not to present it as the be-all and end-all. And, you know, uh, I think that's perhaps the best, the way we, we, we can try and do it. But, but you'd have to take an individual case and, and look at it um, to, to be more specific in, in, in what you say.
Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, let's uh, respect your time and let's uh, take a break and I think 10, 15 minutes, then we'll reconvene. Thank you.